Welcome to the X Overland Podcast. At X Overland, we're committed to living a life of adventure and to sharing what we learn in the hopes of inspiring and empowering others to boldly explore the world. Join the conversation as we sit down to share stories of overland travel and vehicle-based adventure with a broad range of compelling guests from around the globe. Welcome back, everybody, to the X Overland Podcast. Today, with me on the podcast, I have Sterling Noreen. Sterling is an adventure filmmaker, does a lot of his work off of a motorcycle. Um, he's an adventurer himself. We are thrilled to have him on today, and we're going to be talking primarily about solo travel, solo adventure travel. So, Sterling, welcome to the podcast, and thank you so much for being here. Thanks a lot, Jimmy. It's really good to be here, and thanks everyone that's out there in the audience. I, I'm just so excited to have you on and just eager to have an organic conversation about solo adventure travel and what you're up to, and um, it, there's so much to cover. I'm an adventure rider myself, just got back from a six-night, seven-day trip through Idaho, and I uh, was all camping, and then came back, and in preparation for this episode, episode started watching your uh, solo riding series. And so it's like, there's just so much exploding in my brain to discuss with you today. Awesome. A good place to start. So, so what is, you know, just so people know uh, a little more about you, Sterling, like a little bit about your bio. Like, I, I know it goes all the way back to a Honda 50 at eight years old. Um, but could you give us like the Reader's Digest version just to spool people up? Sure. Well, I like to say that I've been a content creator all my life. You know, that's uh, something a lot of people are interested in these days with YouTube and that. But I started making videos in high school back in 1984, and I've never stopped. It's it's something that once I got going down that path, I kind of knew that's what I wanted to do for my career. I went to school, studied film and video, and then I worked my way up the industry from being a cameraman to an editor, producer, director, did all of that for about 10 years in a variety of contexts until I decided the time had come that I was interested in kind of pursuing my own projects and started with motorcycle videos back in the late 1990s. And that just kind of took off. And that's pretty much what I've been doing since and am most well known for. To dig back there a little bit too, with, with the beginning of your motorcycle adventures, um, is it Helg Peterson? How do you pronounce his name? Helge. Helge Peterson, and a famous like adventure global rider. And he's yeah. he, explain your work with him and kind of what that was all about. Yeah. So kind of after I'd been in the the film and video industry for about ten years, and I was living out in Seattle, Washington. And it was like when you were working with Microsoft and that sort of exactly. thing. Exactly. I was working okay. for Microsoft. You know, kind of the early days of the internet producing content for like CD-ROMs and actually did some really cool projects where we went down to Costa Rica and I got to film a supermodel in the jungle for like eight days and post live video update. You're that guy. You're that guy who got that job. Like who, I'm always like, who gets to go do this? <laughs> it was It was totally awesome. It was like, on the path to doing what I had always wanted to do with film and video, like since day one, I kind of wanted to be some kind of adventure filmmaker. 
And, you know, I started out filming rock climbing videos and stuff like that. But uh, I was getting there. And then I kind of decided, like, okay, I've been in this industry for a while. I've got some experience. I know what I'm doing. I need to come up with a project of my own, like something that wasn't for an employer or whatever, but just my own passion project. And so the first thing you need is a subject. Well, I was interested in motorcycle travel. I'd been riding on the street for about four years, motorcycle touring around the Northwest. And so I was thinking I wanted to make some kind of motorcycle film, a short film. And of course, as a filmmaker, you think, well, what's the story? You know, and a story has to have some kind of conflict, some kind of drama. And so I thought about it and I thought, well, you know, motorcycling is a really risky activity. You know, I grew up with a grandfather that was injured on a motorcycle in World War II. My father was injured on his motorcycle in the 1960s. My uncle died riding on two wheels. And so I grew up in this atmosphere of, you know, motorcycling is dangerous. And yet for the last four years of my life, I'd been riding around and touring and loving it, but I still hadn't completely rationalized those risks in my mind. And so I thought, you know, that's going to be my subject. I'm going to, I'm going to tackle the psychology of why people ride and how they manage to live with those risks. And so I went out and started interviewing people on the streets and at bars and bikers. And I learned pretty quickly that nobody wants to talk about that stuff. They just want to talk about the good rides and the experience of being on their bike. And so I was kind of at a loss for what to do. And then I saw a slideshow at a motorcycle dealership with this guy who had just returned from riding around the world for 10 years on his BMW. And he was a photographer and his slideshow was so inspirational in the stories that he had about traveling around the world, living off of his motorcycle, taking pictures for 10 years. It inspired me so much that I introduced myself and told him a little about my background and asked him if there was a chance that we could work on some kind of motorcycle project together where he could be a photographer and I could use my video skills. And he agreed. And so we went out and made a short 10-minute film that was kind of like his story where he talked about his travels around the world on a motorcycle and I used his pictures, but it was all in the context of this short three-day ride that we were on together. And so that was sort of the first motorcycle film that I did. And this gentleman, his name is Helge Peterson. Two years later, he went on to found Globe Riders, which is a motorcycle touring company and was known for leading some of the longest tours around the world, like 60, 70 days across Asia, across Africa. And once he started that company, he invited me to follow along with him and ride with him and document many of those adventures. So over the next 10 years, I did uh, five or six Globe Riders rides with him around the world and made feature-length films and television series about those travels. And he was kind of the expert, in my opinion. You know, I was a novice. I was getting into this whole motorcycle travel thing, and I didn't feel like I really had the skills or the knowledge that people would listen to. Like, who was I to tell people about motorcycle travel? But because he was an expert, I kind of leveraged his expertise and my video production skills. And together, you know, we created the series of, of Globe Riders videos. Now, now, are those still available? Can people check those out? Yeah, they are still available. They're, they were originally distributed on DVD 
and also on broadcast. We had some of them on Discovery Channel and other networks around the world. But right now, they're all on the Motorcycle Travel Channel, my YouTube channel. They're all on there in their full length for free. Oh man! Well, we're, we'll definitely have lots of links to to all of your work in the in the uh, show notes for this episode, Sterling. And I, I'm thinking even things like the documentary about the runner in Mexico and Copper Canyon. Uh, I I was listening to a podcast you did, and you were talking about that, and it really struck a chord because um, I actually remember reading that book, Born to Run. And starting barefoot running and minimalist style running and changed my whole approach to running. I'm a pretty big guy. And so that really helped. But uh, I couldn't believe the coincidence and like the connections there uh, with that story. So I, I would love to have links to that kind of work as well in the show notes for people to check out. Absolutely. That was a whole different project and probably one of the most meaningful projects of my life to this point. So, so now Globe Riders, Helge Peterson, um, where does BDR come, come into this? Because I think for our listeners, uh, they might like knowing that, you know, Sterling, he is responsible, I think for, for filming, is it all of the BDRs or Um, most? 10 out of 12. 10 out of 12. Okay. So let's hear a little bit about that since, you know, a lot of our listeners even take vehicles on BDRs. Yeah. So all throughout the nineties, I was doing these occasional projects with globe riders like every two years we'd go on a big two-month expedition Um, it wasn't a full-time job by any means but in the time between those expeditions you know i i went out and found work for clients in 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 the motorcycle industry and i started making videos about you know products for adventure motorcycling skills instructional dvds um, Tour Attack was one of the big companies that kind of supported me from the beginning. And by the end of the 1990s, we were at a point where we wanted to do something locally for adventure riding. And that's kind of where the BDR came in. Um, we filmed our first YouTube video in Oregon on the original BDR in 2009. And Helge was on that project along with the CEO and general manager of Tour Attack. And so the four of us went out and filmed the Oregon Backcountry Discovery Route, put it up on YouTube. People loved it. And that would have been the end of the story right there. But the next year, in 2010, we learned about these two guys from Washington State that were adventure motorcyclists, and they were also kind of had backgrounds in the tech industry. And they had this vision of creating a Washington BDR like Oregon had. And when I learned about that and met those guys, I suggested that we loop Tour Attack in because there might be some support for making another video about this potential new route. And so we put together a plan. We went out, created the Washington BDR, filmed it, released it to the public in 2010, and that ball has just kept rolling every year since then. Yeah, and these are, um, you know, to, so people know uh, BDRs, we're talking about backcountry discovery routes, and these are pretty much all dirt routes uh, from, you know, south to north or north to south, however you want to ride it. I think they're intended to be uh, ridden from south to north, I believe. Is that correct? Yeah, they've just kind of, ha- that's traditionally the way that we've done it. I'm not sure what the reasoning is, but just we started doing it that way and we've kept on going. But yeah, they're generally speaking, south-north, north-south routes across 
one single entire state with the goal of doing as much dirt roads as possible. And it's not always possible to have an entirely dirt BDR. There's going to be some sections of pavement, but even the pavement sections, we try to find the beautiful backcountry roads and then mm-hmm. link those up with the beautiful forest roads, throw in a few expert only sections. And before you know it, you got a route that's 600 to 1200 miles long that goes through the backcountry across an entire state. Yeah, the, they, it's, yeah, I have yet to do a, a BDR and I am really, really eager to do my first. I think I'm finally ready. Like I've just worked myself into a place to where I'm ready to do it. Um, and so, yeah, those, those are amazing whether you're on a bike and apparently, you know, you can drive those in overlanding vehicles, uh, a lot of forest service roads, that sort of thing. Um, so awesome opportunities out there. If you're interested in a backcountry route, BDRs are fantastic. And I think it's a nice uh, segue, Sterling, for us to transition from your background and a lot of the work you've done into the focus of this episode, which is solo adventure travel, just because I feel like that solo travel, it, it connects with your professional work here in the context we're talking about, just like it would say maybe your own personal interests, meaning professionally, yeah. you were always with these big group rides and... Um, and you wanted to do something outside of that, I, uh, you were you were saying. So what did that look like, you know, just moving from those group uh, film endeavors to something that was more independent? Yeah, that was a big step for me. Um, and you hit the nail on the head with the, the reasons why I did it. You know, first, I would just say that it, it was and always is an incredible opportunity to get to do what I do and get paid to go on a motorcycle adventure around the world and film it. Even if it is a big group, even if it's a commercial tour, it's still something that I'm really grateful for. And I'm grateful to have had all those experiment experiences documenting rides around the world. But there are challenges and difficulties when it comes to filming those rides. Um, there's usually a big schedule fast-paced itinerary. There's a group of personalities that might or might not conflict with each other. And the priority of those rides is usually, especially in the commercial tours, the rider's enjoyment of the ride. They're not necessarily there to make a movie or make a film. And so I was kind of limited as a filmmaker in what I could do to follow and document these adventures because I always felt like We were in such a hurry and we never got to really appreciate or stay in one place for too long before we had to keep the ball rolling and get on the bikes and go to the next place. Mm -hmm. And so there was always kind of a longing on my part as a filmmaker to, to, to be in a context where I could slow things down and spend some time in one place. If I thought it was like a really rich environment to gather material and stories for my filmmaking. And so that's kind of what, one of the things that led me to wanting to do some more solo travel. And I think it was, you know, after about doing the, after doing those globe riders trips for about 10 years, I felt like I was ready to take on the challenge and the opportunity of doing my first solo project. And that was 2009. So that was for me, that was kind of right in between globe riders and then the start of the BDR. And so I did this first solo project in 2009, where 
my my goal or my agenda was sort of to to head out on a long motorcycle adventure by myself and just to show people kind of the reality of what that's like. And I had a couple of inspirations. Um, and I'll say who those are just in case your audience is familiar or they can look them up. But yeah, one of them was this guy. Um, his name was Dick Prenicky. And Dick Prenicky was a guy that lived in Alaska and documented his life in the remote bush building a cabin with his hands and living off the land. Yeah. And he did all of this back in the 1960s and 70s. And he didn't start until he was 55 years old. Hmm. Literally got flown in on a bush plane, dropped off in the wilderness, and all he had were like the metal parts of his tools, like his shovels and his hammers. And so he had to literally cut and whittle branches to make handles for his metal tools so that he could begin to go to work building his cabin. And he filmed everything with a 16 millimeter film camera. And so it was like this very simple and beautiful presentation of this guy's life in the wilderness his daily chores, things like that. I found that really inspiring. And then the other one was a, a Canadian television survival guy named Les Stroud. Yeah. And I saw a couple of his videos. He was, I think he was called the Survivor Man. And he had a video camera and he would put himself out in the wilderness in these situations and film his survival. And I thought that both of these things could be translated into a motorcycle adventure. And so that was kind of my goal that was to to hit the road on my adventure bike, go out and just document whatever happened along the way. So the first thing I needed to decide was where to go. And I didn't have any sponsorship or money or a big budget. So kind of like flying around the world and going to some other big countries wasn't really an option. Oh, sure. So I decided I would go to Mexico. You know, it's like- yeah right next to us. It's a big country. I'd heard all kinds of incredible stories about the rioting down there and other things. And, and so I thought, well, that's, that's where I'll go. And then the other part of the story that I was looking for was something that was different than what I heard, had heard in the news all the time. In other words, all I ever heard was the drug war and murder and kidnapping and the dangers and yet my own personal experience of traveling around the world on a motorcycle with globe riders was that everywhere we went, people treated us like they were, like we were part of their family. People were really good and generous and hospitable. And so I felt like the same thing would happen in Mexico. And, and I felt like if I looked long enough, I would find some kind of really cool, inspirational, positive story about something going on south of the border. And so that was my mission, was to go down to Mexico, ride around, prove to the world that Mexico isn't all danger and that there's something else, there's other things going on that are good. And I don't know what that was going to be when I left, but I had hoped that I would find it along the way. And as it turns out, I did. After about 50 days of travel, I ended up in the bottom of the deepest gorge in North America. It's the Copper Canyon. Boy. And... I was on the road for seven weeks at that time. I'd filmed everything going down the Baja Peninsula, the ferry over to the mainland, riding through Sinaloa, riding into Chihuahua. Um, but I still hadn't quite found the story I was looking for. And I got to the Copper Canyon and I descended 8,000 feet down to the bottom of the gorge. It's over 100 degrees. 
I got food poisoning. The battery on my motorcycle died. It was literally and figuratively the low point of the journey. And not only that, I kind of felt like I hadn't completely found the story I was looking for and I was running out of time. I had to go home now. Well, I was forced to stay there for a couple days. And during those two days that I was sitting around there, this American ultra runner shows up and he's out running around the trails with the local Tarahumara Indians. They're, that's the native culture that live down there. They're some of the best long distance runners in the world because, you know, they, they, walk, they walk and run up these giant steep canyons every day just to get by and celebrate running in their culture. And he, as an ultra marathon runner, had a deep love and respect for them. And so he would go down there every winter and spend months in the canyons and mm. running with them. And over time, he decided that he wanted to do something to to help them preserve their running traditions. And so he created a 50-mile ultra marathon race that took place once a year down in the bottom of the canyons. And he'd been doing that race for a few years. And it was like, like the book Born to Run says, it's the greatest race the world had never seen. You have this 50-mile ultra marathon with these Stone Age athletes running against some of the best modern runners in the world in this really remote setting. And he invited me to film that race. It just so happened that it was like a week later. And so I stayed there for a week wondering, you know, is this race going to be anything? And my girlfriend at the time was like, you got to get back here. I miss you. She was getting upset. And I'm hanging out in this hot, dusty canyon thinking, is this going to be worth it? Right. And then race day comes around and all of a sudden these Tara Amara from miles around start walking into the village and it, it just exploded with color and life and festivity and the race happened. It was the most beautiful thing I'd seen. I was able to ride my motorcycle up and down the course and film different parts of the race. I interviewed this this man and I left feeling like I found this really beautiful story about something going on in Mexico. And so then I went home and you know, made, made my movie about that. And that was, that was really my first solo project is kind of where it started. And then the BDR took off and I got so involved with that, that I, you know, I didn't really do any more solo projects until just the last few years. I kind of got back into that again. Well, it, it, it strikes me that, that the title of that film was Cabo, Cabo Blanco, right. Or something like that. Uh, the move, the first, the movie that I made, based on that trip, was called Beyond the Border: Riding Solo in Mexico. Okay. And after I got home and put that movie out, I stayed in touch with Micah. That was his name. His name was Micah True. I stayed in touch with him, and he always wanted me to come down there and do some more filming and make a a bigger movie about the race. And I kind of wanted to do that too. To be honest, I was at a point in my career where I was feeling like, like I wanted the challenge of making a real quote unquote documentary that wasn't about me. It wasn't about motorcycling, but could I take on a big important subject and do it, you know, justice as a filmmaker. Mm -hmm. So three years after that Mexico trip, I did decide to go back down there again. And this time to make specifically a documentary about Micah and the race in the Tarahumara. 
And so I went down there in 2013, 2012, filmed the race for a second time, and it was just as big and beautiful as it was the first time. And I managed to get one interview with Micah before I had to go back home to Seattle. But we planned on staying in touch and continuing to work on the project over the coming years. We had a lot to figure out. That was just sort of our initial attempt. Well, I was only home for a few days in Seattle when I got a phone call that said Micah had went for a run in the Gila wilderness of New Mexico and disappeared. And nobody knew what had happened or where he was. So I got on a plane and I flew down to New Mexico. And by the time I got off the plane, we had learned that Micah had died while he was running in the Gila wilderness. He was 58 years old. He had an enlarged heart. He died doing what he loved to do. But I like to say more importantly, he died, he lived doing what he loved to do. And so that put me in an interesting position. I had just returned from filming the race a second time and had an interview with this man that was the last interview he would ever give anyone in his life. And there was so much outpouring of support from around the world and grief for his passing. People had vigils all around the world for him. And I kind of felt like it was my responsibility to, to finish the film and sort of tell the legacy about him and the race and the book. And so that's what I did. I spent the next four years of my life, you know, working on this project and came out with that documentary. It was called Run Free, The True Story of Caballo Blanco. Okay. That was the one I, I was thinking about, you know, that, that you, you put together that I'd heard about before and I, I really would love to watch that. And I'm, I'm thinking, I'm hearing you tell this story, Sterling, of your first major solo adventure in going into Mexico, both as a filmmaker, um, as an individual, and as a writer. And I'm thinking of the notes that you know we've been passing back and forth between each other here as we've gotten ready for the podcast. And this uh, concept that you're developing around solo adventure travel for your content, which is is designed to to help educate people about solo adventure travel, um, how to stay safe, how to enjoy it, et cetera. And in hearing your story just now, like I'm thinking of some of the bullet points here on the benefits of riding solo. And I'm thinking about how I, I and I could be wrong here, but do you think if, if you weren't riding solo in New Mexico the way you were, that these events would have unfolded the way they did and you would have met these people, you know, the way you did? Absolutely not. I think that riding solo was critical. Um, you know, the reason off the top of my head is that Micah, the person that I found down there that organized that race, he was a very unique and protective person towards the race and towards the Taramara Indians and the culture down there. And the last thing he wanted was the outside the world to come in with its influences of greed and corruption and commercialization and turn the whole scene into like a big tourist attraction. And, and so I think the only reason he trusted me was that because I was alone, because I wasn't part of a big group or a corporation or some large entity. I was just one person on my motorcycle with the right intentions. And that spoke a lot to him. 
Yeah, you know, I kind of see you as is uh, what I might call an adventure artist, and someone like that, you know, sees you traveling solo and with a you know an aesthetic vision and wanting to tell a positive story. I, I could see how that relationship could be formed, and I'm just thinking like you know one of the benefits that that you have written down um is the benefit of 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 meeting people right of like meet you have it right here meet new people and and that's the one that just pops into my mind and even like this this week long trip i just took which was solo and other shorter solo trips i've done that that's become one of my favorite parts of the experience is there's something about being solo that if you know, leads you to to meeting more people and connecting with more people it seems to me have you found that to be true in your other solo adventures? Absolutely. You know, when you're riding on a trip by yourself, you don't have the the shelter and the protection of your group that you can just hang around with and be insulated from the place that you're traveling through. You know, you need to figure out things on your own about where to go, what to eat, where am I going to sleep, where am I going to buy food? And so you need to communicate with the people that you meet along the way. And, and, and in particular, if you're traveling in a different country, a different culture with a different language, that's a big part of the trip. You know, you're, you're dependent on your interactions with other people along the way. And that's very much influenced by, you know, by being solo. And it kind of forces you out of your, your shell. You know, you just, you have no choice but to communicate with people and interact with people that you meet along the way. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And on a motorcycle, it's like that whole phenomenon just gets amplified, I think. Yeah. You now, know, that's bad. You know, when I travel solo in the backcountry in the United States, a lot of times my only contact with other people might be the gas station attendant or the person at the convenience store. And you know how much you talk to those people. Like, yeah, you barely say hello. Right. And I, you know, I could ride for days upon days where I don't have a conversation with another person. Correct. You know, um, it would be a little more difficult to do that in another country because, you, again, you have like the language and, you know, I know how things work here. I can get in and out of the gas stations pretty quick, get what I need and get out of there. And so, you know, it can go both ways. But yeah, man, I, I can only imagine like I'm sitting here thinking to myself, like how important it is to you know, get a lot of experience solo traveling domestically, uh, like how helpful that would be then, like when you move into a different country and the whole, there's a whole language barrier phenomenon and what that would look like. And, you know, I'm just picturing myself there with Google translate, trying to try to communicate with somebody, but it's like, yeah, it's, it's such a phenomenon to be out there on your own. And, uh, one of the benefits, like you said, to solo travel is just the people you meet because of that phenomenon. And I'm wondering like some other things I've heard you say about solo, because when we get into that, right, it's like there there seems to me to be a kind of mindset of solo travel is dangerous. You should always ride with a partner. Um, and that's that kind of a very, you know, maybe I you might say overly simplified way of looking at it. And when you were describing like, why did I start solo traveling? It was really cool to me that this the the first thing you mentioned was the the kind of practical aspects of solo travel, like why you did it, like finding partners, but the aesthetic even being more important than that. I feel like that was at the top as a filmmaker, like the need to have the freedom to 
do things the way you wanted to do them as a filmmaker. Um, and so I guess I'm just looking at what would be in your mind some of the reasons to travel solo along with meeting people and some of the things we've talked about. Well, yeah, like you, like you mentioned, there are just some practical aspects to it. Um, scheduling, for example, a lot of times you might want to go out and do a ride and none of your friends can go out and do the same ride or the same time or whatever. And when you go on your own, you're just, you know, you can go on your own schedule. Not only that, like the pace of the ride itself, um, you might want to ride all day or you might want to stop more often. And when you're riding with other people or in a group, you have to make compromises. You can't necessarily ride at the pace that you want to make. And a lot of times for me, it's, I would rather spend more time stopping and taking pictures and, you know, those kind of things. And quite often the groups that I would be riding with, they'd be like, no, come on, we got to go. We got to get back on the road. Hurry up, Sterling. And, you know, and that gets into the sort of aesthetic reasons as well. You know, as a filmmaker, I like to have the time to be able to, to do it the way I like to and to slow down and to be where I want to be when the lighting is good and, you know, all different reasons. Man, I can so see that too, Sterling, and riding solo, like the the cinematography in that, the aesthetics of the shots that you're setting up, man, just beautiful, you know, and just so like that whole experience, like I can tell you're not cutting corners around the experience in order to make the film. It's you are you are documenting authentically what it feels like to ride solo and you know, the camping, the riding the challenges. It's just all there. And the pace, it's interesting how your influence is interesting to me, how your influence was, uh, Pernicki, um, the, the guy who built the cabin. Cause that whole style to me, when I watch that series, I love that. I know the one you're talking about, there's almost like a Zen like feeling to it. That's really like healthy and restorative for my mind. And I think solo travel can be that, you know, it's just like you finally push away the clutter and you start to just get into a routine um, and yeah, man, that really comes across in your filmmaking, you know, the, your style and approach. Absolutely. I think that's one of the things that inspires me the most. And that I try to communicate to people is, is to find that place, you know, that, that freedom and like the relaxation, the Zen, the tranquility of it, because I think that's not only missing from our lives quite a bit, but it's also missing from the whole adventure motorcycle travel community. You know, most of the the messaging and the marketing that we get from the manufacturers and from adventure motorcycling, it's all about horsepower and wheelies and sort of this adolescent adrenaline thing, which, you know, there's times when that's absolutely fun, no doubt about it, but I think they're kind of missing the boat on other parts of the the, the reasons why we go out and do this thing, which to me is to, to get to these beautiful places, to be able to relax and experience some solitude, some beauty, some relaxation. And then for me, just to be able to communicate that with people. Well, man, you know, like part of the fun of an episode like this is just sharing some good stories about the experience. In this case, the solo travel experience and you know, to the point of what we're talking about, this recent trip of mine, I found myself at this campsite at the top of a pass in uh, Idaho, 
And uh, to my surprise, there was not a single person there, even though it was a Saturday night. And um, it was out of cell service, which also I think was a big win because all of a sudden all the tech went dark. And other than sending an in-reach message to my wife so she knew where I was camped, um, it became a scene of total silence. Like I remember after the birds went to sleep, it was, and I woke up around two in the morning and it was, I mean, it's so, you know, the sound of silence, kind of a cliche to say, but I yeah. swear, man, I don't know how else to put it. It was like, I felt like I was in outer space or something yeah. and all I had were my thoughts. Right. And so all of a sudden my thoughts really mattered. Like, what am I thinking right now? Are they fearful thoughts or relaxing thoughts? Or am I engaged in the present? But yeah. that silence, like, I don't, there are few places in today's world I feel like you can get that, you know, and away from the tech too, which is always Absolutely. there to pester. Absolutely. I think it, you know, to me, it border, it's borderline like mystical or religious yes. to be able to experience something like that. And, you know, I will say that it can be very challenging and unnerving for someone that doesn't have a lot of experience doing that. To be in a situation like that, it can cause a lot of fears or anxiety or, or or whatever. But, you know, I've found in my life, the more that I've embraced those experiences, the more comfortable I've become out there and the more enjoyable and rewarding they've been to me. Well, you know, like um, the embracing and just the growing, like just becoming comfortable with being alone and, and traveling solo, you know, it speaks to another area to look at as far as benefits of riding solo. And it's kind of a counterintuitive one. People always say, you know, ride with a partner and whether, um, almost anything I do, I find there are some partners, if you don't choose your partners wisely, um, there's danger in riding with certain people or groups because of the behavior, the egos, uh, the pushing. And all of a sudden you're like, I, f I find myself in much more dangerous situations riding with other people than I ever would be if I were going at my own pace solo. Absolutely. I agree a hundred percent. I've seen that so often in my rides where, you know, there's intentional or not, there's just a subtle peer pressure from the group and whether it's a big group or whether it's just with another person. And so people quite often, you know, are, are forced out of their, their safety zones and maybe riding in ways that they wouldn't, normally ride or be comfortable riding. And so there is some some danger and some risk. Obviously, there's some benefits of riding with other people when it comes to risk and safety and security as well. And, and I certainly don't want to make a claim that riding solo is the only way to go. I've been on some great rides with other people, and I love riding with other people. But I just think that there's also a time and place for riding solo in my life and, and for other people's lives as well. And, you know, I think, um, you know, we're talking specifically a lot about riding, um, but I would imagine even for a vehicle-based adventure, someone out like an overlanding rig or something, and, and you have a van and take your bike around. So, you know, I, I would think there's still um, this kind of solo phenomenon. It might not be as amplified because you're not quite as exposed as you are on a bike, but you're still out there on your own by yourself. And it's very different than being in a group. And you, with, when you're in your van, like, is there a difference there? Like, how would you compare those two experiences? Yeah. You know, the, so, the whole solo thing isn't obviously limited to motorcycles. There's people in every endeavor going solo. 
you just look on YouTube and you'll see entire channels dedicated to solo hiking and solo sailing and solo kayaking and solo bicycling. And so, you know, people, people do solo pursuits in, in, you know, any way in every way that they possibly can. For me, it's mostly motorcycling, although it did start out backpacking, um, mm -hmm. even or motorcycling. And also, like you mentioned, my van, I, I do love to travel in my four by four van go out to the same beautiful remote places, film, spend time there, make videos. Um, and I really like the contrast between doing these things in my van versus the motorcycle because in the van, I can be really comfortable at the end of the day. I've got everything I need. I've got a, you know, a metal structure to sleep in, a big comfortable bed, a refrigerator, cooking stuff, you know, the, the end of the day stuff in the van is just way more relaxing and easier and more comfortable. It's the, the during the day part that's more fun on the motorcycle, being on the road, riding the bike, the wind in my face, feeling the adrenaline rush of the corners and the curves. And it's just, it's more active, it's more fun, but in, in a perfect world, I would ride all day and then have the van just waiting for me at night. I, I agree with that. I, I'm sitting here thinking we need to get some friends who would like to like run ahead and make a base camp, almost like a kayaker would have someone with a raft who would go downstream and make a real, you know, luxe camp to arrive at. But there is, there is just like, we talk at X Overland a lot about the thrive factor, you know, like you, it begins with bare survival. And then our goal is always to get enough skills, knowledge and the right gear so we can thrive when we're out there. Um, and that means we can stay out longer. Yeah. And I find, um, I have a four wheel camper pickup set up and it's just incredibly comfortable. Um, and when I'm on the bike, it's like, no matter how, how much I try to use my brain to make it as nice as I can possibly make it, you know, so I do thrive. Um, yeah. it's still, you're on a bike, you know, you're, you're totally exposed and it takes its toll a lot more than say traveling with my, my four wheel camper. Yeah, absolutely. Um, my girlfriend Eva has this phrase that she uses and she, her background, she used to be a survival instructor for women and youth on the East coast. She would do these girls survival schools for like two weeks at a time. And she would always tell the young, young girls that we're out here to smooth it, not rough it. And that's kind of what you're saying. And what I try to keep in mind on my motorcycle trips is, I'm I'm not out there to rough it. I'm I'm trying to smooth it. I want to be as comfortable as I can. And it has taken me a long time to learn that because yeah, for most of my career, I just assumed and expected that I had to suffer. That motorcycling trips were all about being dirty, tired, sore, eating bad food, sleeping uncomfortably. That was part of the process. And so I was like, yeah, well, okay. I'm going to embrace that. Do it. I won't complain and I'll suffer. And, you know, that got me through it. But as I've gotten older and wiser, I've kind of realized that, hey, well, no, maybe if I'm a little smarter and think about things a little differently, it, you know, it, it's still going to be roughing it. Don't get me wrong. It's not an easy, comfortable way to travel all the time. But I think I've gone a long ways to making my rides more comfortable and, therefore more endurable and enjoyable along the way. 
Yeah. You know, for people who are listening, uh, we're talking about Eva Rupert, who uh, runs adventure motorcycling events at Expo and uh, was, uh, you know, she's got her own kind of celebrity background in this world. And Eva and Sterling are partners and um, run the, the Jean Quill Hotel together, right? Yeah, the Jean Quill Motel. Motel, excuse me. And you guys just did a, a Baja trip that you filmed not too long ago. Like speaking of amenities and just making the the traveling experience as pleasant as possible and thriving that way, I want to say your Baja trip reflects that kind of approach. Interesting. Okay. I mean, maybe. Uh, uh, do you think so? Well, I, yeah, definitely, because that's the way I like to travel. You know, yeah. that's, that's what I'm all about now is how do I get to these beautiful remote places, but get there with just the right amount of stuff so that I can thrive, so that I yeah. can be comfortable, eat well, have a cold drink, have a good place to sleep, have something proper to eat in the morning, and then get up and ride again. And we tried to do that in Baja, and I think it worked pretty well. Yeah, like I noticed you guys would take advantage of things like there's a great taco stand or a little restaurant there instead of having to cook. It's like we can have a great meal here and then go to the beach. Um, and it's just like that balance, the way you capitalized on opportunities to thrive that were right there in front of you and then balance that with, you know, when those weren't there, you're still using all your skills and knowledge to camp well and eat well. And, uh, that combination just leads to a much pleasant, more pleasant experience, in my opinion, that allows you to just stay out and keep enjoying all this. So that's, uh, I, I think, you know, when you're talking about skill sets and teaching people about riding solo and solo adventure, I, I think I look forward to learning more about, you know, how to do that, right? Like how to balance what I'm carrying. Cause that's weight and bulk with the, the kind of thrive factor that comes from carrying whatever it is additional you're carrying that isn't just purely survival gear. Yeah. Yeah. A lot to learn. <laughs> so, uh, speaking of which, so riding solo, some things that can go wrong from your list there, like what would, what are some things that are top of mind? Um, well, let's start with mechanical problems. You could always have some kind of an issue with your motorcycle. I've been pretty fortunate in my years of riding that I've had very few big mechanical issues that required some kind of external bailout. And, you know, that might be due to the fact that I've always ridden big, large, new, expensive BMW adventure motorcycles, and I get them serviced on a regular basis, and I take care of them because I don't like breaking down in the middle of nowhere. You know, I'm not a bike mechanic. I don't have any specific mechanical skills. And so I, you know, I need to have a machine that works well and will get the job done. And I figure my part is to like be aware of potential issues to give it, you know, thorough inspections and see where bolts might be making their way loose. Or if I start to hear or feel a different sound or noise, like that's my job to kind of pay attention to those things and get them addressed as soon as possible. Um, flat tires are something that you definitely need to be prepared for and know how to fix on your own because that's something that will happen. And, you know, when you're out in the back country on your bike by yourself and you get a flat tire, you need to know, is it a tubeless tire? Does it have a tube in it? Do you have the right stuff 
to take the wheel off the bike, get the inner tube out, patch it, put it back in? Or do you have a tubeless tire puncture repair kit? Do you have an air compressor or a hand pump? So tire repair is essential. And that's something that I encourage people that practice at home, you know, before they go out is definitely take your wheel off, take your tire off the wheel, you know, do a, do a puncture repair, just so you know how to do it. Um, you could always run out of fuel. That's a potential danger out of the back country. I've been able to get by without ever carrying accessory fuel tanks. I've never done that on my motorcycle and I've never run out of gas. So just depends on your motorcycle and what size fuel capacity you have. Yeah. And I noticed you should, you had this tip too, like you, if, if possible, you try not to let it get below a half tank. So if it's going below a half tank, it's not because you failed to top it off with fuel. It's just, you're on that bigger ride. Yeah. Basically anytime I'm heading off into a backcountry ride, in other words, I'm leaving the last little town and heading into the mountains, I'll top off. And it doesn't matter what my tank is at. If I know this is the last gas station until I get out on the other side, I'm going to go in there with as much gas as I can. It's so familiar, I think, are applicable too to anybody with four wheels. All these, all these principles like changing a tire, dealing with a flat, monitoring your fuel, paying close attention to your vehicle, making sure that things aren't rattling loose or there isn't a problem starting to occur. Yeah, this is all stuff that just keeps you going, making sure it's serviced, the mechanics are good before you head out on the trip. I, I, uh, all these things I hear you saying, I think are applicable to two wheels or four. Absolutely. Um, accidents, crashes, that's another unfortunate thing that we need to be prepared for. And it's not untypical that these big adventure bikes get tipped over. That happens all the time. Whether I'm riding alone or in groups of people, when you start to hit the rough terrain and you're going slow and trying to negotiate over rocks or even just park your motorcycle, it's going to fall over. And so, you know, accidents aside, you just need to be able to pick up your motorcycle. And that's a, you know, something I wouldn't do. I wouldn't go out in the backcountry if I couldn't pick up my own motorcycle and get it, get it back upright and get it going again. Yeah, that's something you can practice. Like there are lots of videos on on how to do that. Best practices you can get it set down in your lawn or you know driveway or something and work on picking it up. I I know I've done that with mine. I'm not too particular or worried about scratches, um, but I figure yeah, if if I can't pick it up in the driveway, I good luck in the yeah. field. Yeah. Um. So you know I'm I'm thinking too of some other points you have as far as potential dangers and. I saw again and again, um, you know, don't go down what you don't think you can come up and vice versa. And um, I think that's true in a vehicle as well, for sure. And I'm and I'm just wondering, like, for, for all these kinds of bullet points and ideas you have, Sterling, you must have some pretty good stories in which you learned some lessons that either, you know, could have ended badly and you learned from it or... So yeah. I've heard, uh, you know, what kind of stories connect to some of these? Well, I've got, got plenty of sort of generic ones that can speak to that. And I've got one really big one that can speak to that. Um, it is not uncommon that, you know, in, in my case, when I'm out riding, 
by myself, sometimes I'm, I'm, I'm looking to explore some new terrain, some new roads, lines on a map, and I'm not necessarily following um, a, a known route. You know, if you're if you're just getting into this kind of thing, you might want to stick with a backcountry discovery route where it's clearly laid out. You know that the roads go through. You know that there's a lot of people doing them, that it's, you know, acceptable for adventure motorcycles. Sometimes I get, get myself out in situations where I'm going down unknown roads that maybe look good on a map or I want to see what's down there and they start to get really difficult. They start to get really challenging and it's up to me to assess at what point do I turn around because at some point it gets to be just too difficult or even too dangerous to continue. Um, I mean, if it gets too rough and I start falling over more than once, twice, three times, that's, that gets to be pretty exhausting, picking up the bike and recovering and continuing to go. And if they get even harder, then, you know, there's always a chance I could break something on the bike or hurt myself. And so I have a pretty, pretty solid assessment of my own abilities and what's appropriate. Um, but there, there have been times where I've learned the hard way. One time would be a couple summers ago. I was up, to hear the story. Yeah. I was up yeah. in Colorado and I was riding up a, a place called Ptarmigan Pass and it looked good on a map and the road going up to the top of this mountain was, was beautiful and it was easy and it was, you know, it was rocky or some embedded rocks, but it wasn't challenging. And I got up to the top and there was a sheep herder up there with like 2000 sheep. And he had his little trailer and he was the only person up there. And I spent the night with him. Yes. I'm this what, with what an experience. It was phenomenal. It was beautiful. And the next morning I woke up and I wanted to continue going down the road on the other side because it, on the map, it came out at the, at the highway, like 10 or 12 miles further down the backside of the mountain. And so I started going down and it, and it was easy and it was beautiful. And then it started getting a little more difficult. Then it started getting pretty rocky. Then it started getting rockier and steeper. But it only started getting harder the closer I was getting to the highway. Right. So it's and luring so, you down. Like, oh, if I could just make it oh. through, you know, I'll get there. It's going to be awesome. And then I get all the way down about a half a mile from the highway. And there's a creek and there's a gate and there's a road closed sign. Oh, God. And I was trapped. Was this on the 1250? It was on my 1200, yeah. Oh, 1200, yeah. 1200. And I just, my heart sank, and I just thought, oh, no. Oh, no, there's no way I can ride back up that hill. And I'm thinking, what am I going to do? Like, okay, if I walk a half a mile down this creek, I can get out to the highway. Okay, but then, like, do I get help? Do I find someone with a vehicle to drive all the way around to get my bike? And then I'm thinking, well, maybe I take off all my gear and I try to ride up the hill without gear. That's good. But then do I have to walk all the way back down to get my gear and hike up with it? And none of these scenarios were looking good. And so I thought, well, I'm just going to try to right? ride. I'd back up this hill that I, there's no way I thought I could do it on a fully loaded 1200 steep, loose, rocky. I'm like, I, I got to at least give it a shot. Right. And then, you know, whatever. Lo and behold, I made it. I rode back up. 
I was white knuckles sweating the whole time. Oh, I got up and it was like a hallelujah, God, I'll never do that again. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, I, God, I can just so empathize with that, you know, that sinking of the heart when you realize, oh man, I'm in, I'm in a situation now. And the reason my heart sank so much, not because I was feared for my life or thought I was going to get hurt or anything like that. It was because I just knew it was going to be a hell of a lot of work to do any of those scenarios to get out. Like it was just, it would have taken a whole day, maybe two days. And I just was like, oh, if I could just ride out in 20 minutes, I'll be back at the top. Everything will be good. And I won't have to deal with all this other stuff. So like the choices that you have to make in the moment with this kind of thing. And let's say, for example, because I'm thinking of some of your other tips, right? For what you, what do you do if you're solo traveling and things go wrong? Uh, mechanical breakdown, maybe an injury that keeps you from riding or something like where you were at, where I'm, let's say you decided not to do that ride. It was too risky and you knew you're, you, it, it was going to take a while, this whole thing. So what, what are the steps at that point that you take to make sure things don't escalate, get worse, and you do your best to say, stay in control and get out of the situation? Well, I think you just sort of have to be clear headed and rational right from the start and not go down a road of like impulsive decisions based on panic or fear. Um, make a plan, you know, stick with it. Like in that particular case, I, you know, I decided to ride back up the hill before I had completely thought about what the best thing would have been to do. But like I mentioned, you know, there were a couple of options. I could have walked out to the road or I could have walked all the way back up the hill, which was like 12 miles. You know, I don't, I don't know Ooh. what I've done. 12 like, miles to get out there and waited. Maybe some kind of like ATV would have come through or something like that. So one thing I, I noticed you put down was you might have to camp it out. What do you mean by that? Yeah. Well, for example, when I was riding down in Mexico on my first solo project, I was going down Baja. And I again, I saw this line on the map that looked like a, like a cool road from point A to point B. So I decided to take it. And it got pretty tough, technical, challenging, rocky, loose. And I I fell over three, four, five, six times. And every time I just picked up my bike and kept going. But the last time I fell over, you know, I was pretty exhausted with all I could do to get my bike back up and on the kickstand. And so I just said, you know what? I don't think I can safely continue on this road. I'm just going to stay here. I had everything I needed. I had yeah. food, water, tent, everything. I was in the middle of nowhere. I wasn't afraid of being bothered by anyone. So I just slept there. Sure enough, in the morning, I was rested. I was recharged. I was able to get back on my bike and, you know, get out of there. Um, but the big thing there is that I was prepared. You know, I had what I needed to be able to spend the night and camp out. It sounds it sounds like, you know, your one of your approaches is whether it's fuel, making sure you're topped off with fuel before you go into the backcountry. Uh, or it's water or food, like you're always thinking, okay, from this, I'm crossing a threshold. Um, and before I cross this threshold, I want to make sure I'm topped off with, with all my supplies. And that way, if something does go wrong, you have a little extra, you can camp it out, like you said, 
and you know give yourself a break and not panic and rush um and work through the problem with all the survival yeah that you need that that's totally true but that's not the most important reason why i'm prepared and have all those things ready the most important reason for me is that if i come across a really beautiful place i want to be able to stay there yeah be able to camp and spend the time there and have everything that i need i don't want to get there and go gosh i wish i had food and water with me i would love yeah. to spend the night here instead i have to ride out because i'm out yeah. of supplies yep. yeah and then the emergency is just there right in an emergency you just exactly. have that other stuff makes sense so to, to that i think that's a that's a helpful segue in looking at your tips for surviving a long solo ride and i want to i want you to help us clarify you know, what a long ride looks like as opposed to a weekend ride or even, you know, something like I did was a week long ride. Uh, and I found myself with the week wanting to t cut this, cut that. I, well, I really don't need my fly fishing kit, you know, all these different things. But when I looked over your long ride and I, and I watch, I watch riding solo and all of a sudden I started to rethink what I might want to pack and why. And so how would you describe and define that? And in your approach to a long ride. Okay, we're gonna take a little deep dive here, okay? Yeah, let's do it. This is something I've been working through for a while now that maybe I'll make a video about, but it's what I call the seven levels of motorcycle travel. Okay. And these are basically what we're talking about, like a big ride, a short ride, whatever. And it's kind of good to know which one you're on because that will affect how you prepare for that ride, what you can expect along the way, what the risks are, what the challenges are, et cetera. So I'm just going to work my way through these kind of quickly, okay? Yeah, let's do it. So number one is just a day ride. We all know what that is. You get on your bike, you just go out, you ride for a day, you come home at night. The number two ride would be what I call an overnight or a micro adventure. Eva and I like to think of like these 24-hour micro adventures. So you're, you're on a ride, the purpose is to ride all day, but to also camp out, spend the night away from home, and then you ride back in the morning. The next one would be basically like a weekend or a long weekend ride. You've got two, three days off from work. You're going out for multiple days. And you can see where this is a progression. A lot of people will start, you know, with their first one night camping, and then they'll do like a whole weekend camping. And then we get to level four, which would be kind of like a week long ride, which is like a BDR trip. Now you're, you're out for about a week, you're camping out every night or maybe staying in some motels. And, you know, at this point, you really kind of have to have your game dialed in. You've got to be pretty confident in your abilities and your gear. And you start to get into that routine of, of life on the road, but just for a week or so. The next one is like what I think of as like summer vacation or the big ride. And that's what my riding solo projects are. This is where somebody would go out for like, a month or two months and maybe ride across the entire country or go up into Canada and down to Texas. You know, you're on the road for a pretty long time, like a good part of a season almost. Mm -hmm. Then sort of the next level is what I would call like the semi-permanent life on the road, the nomad. And this is the person that's like, basically for a time being, they're living off of their motorcycle. Maybe they're in between jobs or they quit their job or they're on some kind of big travel where there's, there's no end in sight. They're just like, I'm on my bike now and I'm just riding and this is my 
daily life. This is what I do. And then the ultimate one, the last level was the around the world trip. And that's where, you know, people really quit everything in life, get on their motorcycle, ride around the world. It might take a year or two, however long. And so in my mind, I kind of like divide out motorcycle trips according to those seven levels. I, uh, man, I, I, I would love like a, even a poster of something like that. Um, and because I think it's, it's absolutely applicable to vehicle based travel, you know, four wheels as well as two. Um, and it speaks to, you know, the whole, the whole idea people say, watch a very inspiring, you know, some awesome content, maybe something like ours or something like you put together. And, um, they, a lot of people just immediately think, well, that's the experience. I have to be doing that to, to call myself an adventure rider or an overland or whatever. And, uh, actually it begins with just like that first night out, not too far from home. And, and, and those first nights out don't end either. I, yeah. well, I still go for one night adventures all the time. I like to use the analogy of like running a marathon. You know, if you want to run a marathon, you don't just wake up one day and decide to run a marathon, right? You practice and you train and you do two miles and you do four miles and six and eight. And even after you run that marathon in between your next marathon, you're still probably going out for varying runs of varying lengths. And so I quite often will go out for one night or two nights as a way of training, as a way of keeping myself in shape, keeping my gear in check, knowing what issues I have, trying out new gear, trying out new things. Just there's so many reasons to go on short, quick, close to home trips. Not to mention that you can still get all the benefits of the isolation, the solitude, the beauty, the decompression from life. You know, it's amazing what just a one night trip into the mountains can do for a person. Man, I, I completely agree. You know, that 24 hour trip or 36 hour trip, it's like, it's, it's like, I think it, it's enough to alter your consciousness. And so you, you know, you experience all that and then you come back to your regular daily life conscious, like truly refreshed. Um, and I, I really started to think when I, you know, when you mentioned the, the level where you're going for like a month, say one, one to three month trip, like maybe it's a whole summer long trip or a, or a 30 day trip, like you did in riding solo. Mm -hmm. It's like, um, you, you mentioned like the value of having a hobby that you bring along. Yeah. Um, there's something like that. And that's where that just really, that time frame really changed my perspective into thinking, you know, if I were doing that big a trip, I would bring the fly rod and I would camp in the same place for a couple days and just fish for a day to get off the bike and do something different. Um, yeah. And that's so different than, well, you know, I want to, this is my ride. I want to ride every day and I'm, I'm gone for a week, you know? So I think that's super helpful, man. I hope you make that film with the seven levels because, yeah. uh, it just makes so much sense. Yeah. That's definitely something that I've learned over the years is the, for, for, for me, that hobby is filmmaking, taking pictures, documenting my trips. And especially on the long trips, you know, that gives those trips an added level of purpose and meaning for me. And it also breaks up the monotony of just riding all the time. You know, if I didn't have the filmmaking to fall back on and to, you know, nourish my spirit creatively, the, the riding would kind of start to get a little bit more exhausting and tiring day after day after day. 
And so if I wasn't taking pictures and shooting video, I would maybe learn a new language or start journaling or bring a small musical instrument, learn how to play that or get into running and hiking, you know, basically to have some other passion or interest that you can pursue along the way on your long trip, because they can really like reinforce and enrich each other, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I'm sitting here thinking like, again, you know, how applicable this is, whether you're traveling on two wheels or four. Yeah, absolutely. I think so. So, um, man, solo travel is just, and you know, everything we're talking about, there are so many paths we can go down. Um, and we've already, I, I, I just you know, really appreciate the time you've taken Sterling to, to cover as much as you have. And, um, maybe, you know, if we wrap up with just talking about your, you mentioned five skills, you know, that you think are essential before you go out in solo adventure, or that would really be helpful for you to have. What are those just so people can have a few tangible skills to work on before they, they head out yeah. solo? Um, I think we've covered that, some of them, but I'll touch on them again. Um, you, you need to be good with routes, maps, GPS, knowing where you're going to go, knowing how to find these roads, and then being able to navigate out in the field once you're out there. And that's obviously a lot to cover, but there's a lot of tools, a lot of resources out there nowadays. There's so many different apps and resources and websites and GPX tracks and knowledge about places to go and how to, how to get there. Um, I mentioned fixing a flat tire. That's, that's a really essential skill that you need to have. Um, how to pick up your motorcycle because you're going to tip over at some point. You need to be able to recover, get yourself going. Um, you definitely need to have some level of like wilderness, camping, bushcraft skills. If you're going to be out there in the backcountry riding solo, you need to know how to camp, set up a tent, build a fire, cook a meal, all of those kinds of things. And then the last one isn't really a skill so much as a mindset is just to know your limits. You know, you've got to, you're ultimately responsible for your own safety and you have to know what's the right amount that you can push yourself versus you know, where is it becoming dangerous to yourself? No, yeah, you know, because you even mentioned, like, especially on a motorcycle, the importance of taking care of your body when you're out for multiple days. So um, I guess, you know, what is what does that look like for you? Like, how do you feel out your limits as you go along? Uh, and how do you make sure that you meet your your physical needs so you don't gradually fall into a state of heat exhaustion or something like that? Well, it has happened to me. Um, I, I've almost died from heat exhaustion on trips. I've ended up in the hospital. I have a lot more respect now for having the right amount of water with me, especially when I travel down here in the desert. But, you know, in general, I would say it, it starts with hydration, making sure that you're getting enough fluids, drinking enough throughout the day. And a, the simple check for that is, are you going to the bathroom? Are you urinating throughout the day? And, and if you're not, that means you're not drinking enough water. Mm -hmm. So drink enough that you're always, every time you're stopping the bike, you're going to the bathroom. Um, yep. And then also good diet. You know, I, 
I like to eat well. It's important when I'm on the road. And by well, I don't mean gourmet. I just mean like healthy, nutritious, solid foods. And I see a lot of motorcyclists <laughs> that, you know, they just, they'll eat a power bar and a Gatorade at the gas station and then maybe a freeze dried meal at night and skip breakfast. And your body can't go like that for days. So I really make an effort to eat well on my trips pay attention to my diet. I don't have a problem sleeping. I sleep like a log. And when I'm out camping, not too soon after the sun goes down, I'm exhausted and I'm out like a light and I don't wake up until the morning. You know, you had a tip that I really resonated with me. Like if I could change something from my last trip, it was start early and show up at camp early. Yeah. You know, so like, three, four o'clock, you're coming into a nice campsite with all the daylight and time in the world. Yeah, that's a big one. And it's something, it's hard to do even for myself because, well, number one, sometimes we just like riding and we just want to keep riding all day long. Right. right. Problem is then you end up looking for a campsite in the middle of the night and you're tired and exhausted by the time you get there. And, and I certainly can't do any filming when it's com completely dark yeah. out. So I've kind of trained myself over the years to really try to get up really early. That way I can do a little filming in the morning and then get to a campsite by, you know, later in the afternoon so that there's plenty of light. I'm not in a rush. Yeah. I can set up my camp. I can relax. I can enjoy it. And that's where it's helpful to have that other thing to do. Because if you don't have something else to do, you get to a camp, you pitch your tent, takes 10 minutes, and now it's 3.30 your tent's set up and you're like, okay, now what do I do? <laughs> Six hours of daylight. You're like, well, I might as well just keep riding. Right. And you know, so it just, just sort of depends on your personality and how much you want riding you want to do versus how much other experiences you want to have along the way. But I do try to get in a little earlier and have that time. And, uh, you know, you got me thinking, too, and you were mentioning just being in camp and settling in and then kind of looking around and realizing, wow, I've got, you know, several hours maybe here. Um, how, you know, certainly for me, even on these shorter solo rides, I, I, I feel pangs of loneliness that I have to work my way through. Do you ever experience that kind of thing on these big rides? Or have you have you in the past and found a way to work through that, those feelings? I can't say that I've felt loneliness so much as I felt certain situations that, man, this is just so good. I wish I had someone to share it with. Mm, yeah. You know, certain, certain vistas or views or campsites or locations. I'm like, this is too good for just me. Like I wish Eva was here. I yeah. wish another friend of mine was here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, man. You know, thank you for filming where you go for that reason too, because you get to share it with all yeah. of us to watch. Like, I watching your content in preparation for the podcast, you know, dive in into that solo series. That's as close as I can get to me being out there on the motorcycle. So I could see taking in a lot of episodes of your content just to be out there, you know, on the trail. Yeah. And I, it takes a ton of work. I've gotten just a taste of that, you know, working with X Overland, how much work it takes to produce a film of the experience. So thank you for all you do from You're all cool. of us who watch. Yeah. So, um, well, Sterling, this has been fantastic. And I, I guess, uh, you know, maybe any, any final thoughts as far, as far as like projects you're currently working on and what we can look for in the future, 
Uh, I know we've talked about these content pieces. Uh, if you want to elaborate on that or just so we, we know what yeah. you're up to. Yeah. So these content pieces, that's just an idea that I've been tossing around. But I would say most of the content that I've done in the past, like the writing solo series, they're all kind of episodic day in the life sort of vlog style. You know, and my, my method on those projects is that I basically try to create a video a day. And so I wake up in the morning and I'm like, okay, today I'm going to make a video about this ride, this day. And I want to have good riding. I want to have good things to see on the way. I want to get to a good campsite. I want to have a good meal. That's kind of the formula or the agenda. And I never know how it's going to work out. That's what the video is about. It's like, do I succeed or not? And those are okay. But what I'm thinking about now for some other videos are things that are more like organized around specific ideas. And for me, that would be riding solo. So like it could be a list of five skills you need for riding solo or 10 things that can go wrong or seven things you need to do to prepare or things like that. So that's kind of what I'm tossing around in the back of my mind and thinking about putting out there. I'm not going to stop doing the other travel vlog things because um, I enjoy those as well. In fact, I just got back. I was up in Washington State at the Tech rally and I rode back to Arizona over eight days, I filmed a video every day, but I rode down the California coast. Oh man. And I took as many of the, the dirt roads, the back roads up into the coastal hills as I could. But the most phenomenal part of that ride was that south of Monterey, Big Sur was under construction. And so they had the road closed 80 miles south of Monterey. And so I decided to ride down to the end of the road thinking there would be less traffic because it's closed. And sure enough, there was the last 40 miles. I was the only person riding down Big Sur and back. And I filmed it all. And it was fantastic. It's like the most beautiful cinematic solo riding on the coast of California on Big Sur. I mean, I just, I get tears in my eyes thinking about it. So that's coming out on my channel pretty soon. I can't wait to see that series and that piece. I, that's such an amazing story. It's just so unusual to have like circumstances fall into yeah. like that. Yeah, it was beautiful. Well, Sterling, where, where can people find you who want to find your content? So on YouTube, it's the Motorcycle Travel Channel. And my website is noreenfilms.com, N-O-R-E-N-F-I-L-M-S.com. And our motel in Bisbee is called the Jonquil Motel, and it's thejonquil.com, J-O-N-Q-U-I-L. And you're on Insta, I presume? I am on Insta, sterling.noreen. Perfect. Yeah. Well, man, great having you on. Uh, I I hope someday to get to share a ride with you anywhere uh, to make it to the John Quill Hotel. Um, that's definitely a dream of mine to tour my way down to Arizona on the ADV bike. So um, maybe someday I'll see you there. Awesome. Appreciate it so much. Thank you, everybody. All right. Thanks for joining us, everybody. We'll see you next time. Thank you so much for joining us. If you're enjoying the podcast, please subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes. That really helps. The video version of this episode and of all episodes of the X-Overland podcast are exclusively available at the X-Overland network. Head to xoverland.com to subscribe to the network and for access to all of X-Overland's premium content. We appreciate your support, and until next time, stay adventurous.